Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Monte Carlo is in the books. Congratulations to Stefano Tsitsipas for his victory. Nadal and Djokovic out relatively early. Um, Nadal lost in the quarterfinals to Andre Rublev. Djokovic in the second round to Dan Evans. So uh, since we cover the big three, uh, let's uh, let's start with with that general sense right now is for me okay uh, this from a from a scheduling standpoint it's a vulnerable vulnerable spot for each of them and there's no real long term concerns stemming from these losses you agree Joel yes I would I mean very early in the clay court neither Novak nor Rafa had played since Australia. So still some rust and also came up against inspired opponents. I mean, Dan Evans played a great match to beat Djokovic, played a really smart, uh, tactically adroit match. And then Rublev, he's really good. He's a top 10 player and he just hit, played some great points, played a great match. Yeah, it's so easy to say, oh, they're showing their age, they're getting old. But guys, uh, it's it's happened before that Nadal has lost in Monte Carlo and gone on to win the French Open. I mean, it's happened plenty of times, even though he's won Monte Carlo 11 times. And certainly it's happened to Novak that he's lost in this tournament and gone on to win majors and have a wonderful year. Nadal hasn't won Monte Carlo in the last two seasons, both resulted in, in Roland Garros championships. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, it's not necessarily, uh, a sure thing anymore with that being said we and we've spoken about this before Nadal used to have a little bit more success in these lead-up tournaments but I think that's true kind of for all of them and Djokovic has still had some recent seasons where he's won a ton of titles but all in all I I just feel like this is a 10-month 11-month season and one thing that I don't think any of our three can do nor do they want to do is maintain the 100% intensity throughout the course of that season, like maybe previously they were able to? Well, I think it's a matter of generating those kind of wire to wire results. I mean, I think the intensity when they play will be there as a, as a, as a, as a means of approaching matches. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, and, and Federer has been at the lead of this, of, of self-imposed vacation breaks, you know, letting, letting the ranking be the ranking and really then beginning to focus on the majors. I mean, you could almost could almost arc again the player's career the like for Tsitsipas and Rublev finals of Monte Carlo that's a big deal and winning Monte Carlo and Rafa winning Monte Carlo again and again and then comes the stage of okay and rankings and results and now it becomes at the stage for the big three is pointing towards majors and using the whole season as kind of a, a build-up of Monte Carlo and the other clay events and such. Gil, I think it's more important to reflect on these losses, Novak's and Rafa's losses, and say what was going wrong here and what was going right and what does this portend. 
I think both of the guys struggled with their serves. And remember, conditions for this tournament was even more um, cool and heavy. I, the, the players remarked that the balls were extremely heavy, even for Monte Carlo. So um, it's not necessarily indicative of anything, but both of them struggled mightily on their serves. Yeah, that's true. Um, the The wind was a factor. For Nadal, it, it reminded me so much of the Schwartzman loss last year because that was another match uh, where, where Rafa's serve, um, as Amy's cat makes an appearance, uh, <laughs> Nadal's serve was uh, was way off. Both Both matches were interesting tactically, but at the same time, and I do want to get in, I do want to parse the tactics. Um, I think that is important, but they were both at like, what percent of their games? Probably somewhere under 75% of what they can do. I would agree with that. I I get so, but again, you don't, uh, you don't compete in a vacuum and they're each playing people who were playing Mm -hmm. some inspired quality tennis. I mean, you look at how, how well Evans played. I mean, the, the opponent helps you play badly no matter what the level of sports and even mm-hmm. the serving, even the serve, which would appear to be a shot that you can purely control the quality of returns gets better every few years. I mean, in a way I'm going to give Novak a lot of credit for this. He's kind of raised the bar on what it means to return serve. And that's shown a lot of players. Okay. This is what it takes to compete at the high levels. And you see you know, Rublev is a very good point starter that way with his return. I mean, he can really hit the ball deep and, you know, he's not just kind of, keeping the ball in play and hoping for the best. And he wants to do something. And that, that doesn't help someone like Rafa when he serves. So with, with Evans, it was the slice backhand that stood out to me. If, if we're going to get tactical and, and uh, forcing Novak to create off of that low, relatively low bouncing, but more importantly, low pace shot and through the heavy conditions, it just elongated the points and it kind of forced Djokovic to, to suffer out there more. I was so impressed with Evans's cardio and his shot tolerance. And that, that's what I, I thought was so difficult on, on Djokovic. Amy, what did, you, what did you make of Evans's approach in the backhand slice and how that affected the match? What really, this may be not exactly what you were looking for, but what really struck me is that what worked against Djokovic did not work against Tsitsipas. Evans tried the same thing against Tsitsipas and it was a disaster. And what what makes me, what kind of make me um, think this whole tournament was if you have to beat one of the big three, in a tournament like this, in a, in a high level Masters 1000 or a slam, does it take so much mental out of you that um, statistically you're at a lower shot of winning the entire tournament? I don't know if the, I don't know if that's ever been looked at. Maybe you guys know. Well, I think it's, it's kind of, I don't know if it's, uh, I'm sure it'd be interesting to explore the quantitative aspects of it, but there's also the, the emotional part of it. I mean, off the big win, Evans, the biggest, week of his career, the biggest win of his career. And then he plays someone who's a, a tough matchup that way. I mean, Sitsipis is a very dynamic, aggressive player. Sitsipis in that match started to hit a lot of balls to Evans's forehand. And Evans has kind of a flat forehand, but it's not, Sitsipis, okay, I'm comfortable in these rallies. And so I think you're right. The whole, the whole geography of the court was so different versus Sitsipis than it was versus Novak. Mm-hmm. He just kind of, he kept hitting that slice backhand cross court to Novak and forcing Novak to generate and Sitsipis, I mean, he's a real, 
he's a real racket head speed guy at Sitsipis. I mean, he can really do things with the ball. And I think he was really up for it. And, and, and again, he hadn't had an earlier big win. So he was favored versus Evans. So he felt very comfortable, but, but the emotional aspect, um, Jimmy Connors told me something once he was talking about a player who could often beat top players. He says, yeah, we call this guy. He's a stopper. He, he beats the, he stops the guys from winning the tournament who should win it, but then he doesn't win the tournament. Yeah. And again, I, there's be some letdown after for an Evans. I mean, his body and the whole week. Same thing happened on the other side. Rublev took out Nadal and then he didn't win the tournament. He was the stopper. No, but, but, Rublev, yeah, but, but he had a big win over Rude. Rublev is a top 10 player. He went on to win. He, he, he won his semi after beating Nadal in the quarter. And then you're right. And then he came up against his deal. He, but he, he's, he's, a t- he's won tournaments. I mean, what I heard earlier, he's won like, uh, seven of the last 21 tournaments he's played. Wow. Yeah, he's but won still, about a, a third. Still Masters 1000 yet. Yeah, he's coming right. right now. He's, he's batting, he's Mr. 500. Yeah. He's above 500 against top five players since uh, 2019, also, is, is something that I looked at this week. Uh, but, but yeah, Tsitsipas is a little bit more comfortable generating pace, I'd say, against the Evans' slice than, uh, than Djokovic was. Um, and he also admitted to your point, Amy, he, he admitted that this was a lot emotionally to, to, to beat Djokovic. And it, it left him pretty kind of exhausted uh, by the time he, he reached the semifinal and just had nothing left. Let's hit on a tactical thing from uh, the Nadal Rublev match. I don't think I've ever seen a right-hander take the backhand down the line as often as Rublev did against Nadal. Um, Rafa really obviously wants to, to set up his forehand. All pads lead to the forehand. And he uses his backhand down the line to try to coax that cross-court righty backhand. That's how he wants to, to kind of get his, his baseline rally going. And Rublev just wasn't really giving him that forehand. And they were, he was just going down the line, say, here, hit another backhand, hit another backhand. And uh, it, it really worked well. I don't think I've ever seen that. Well, again, I love seeing the legacy of our, of our big three and how they've created these kind of problem statements that other people have to solve with their shots. So you see, I mean, Rublev, Rublev hits the ball down the line so big, so flat, both sides. So now the court is a whole different deal than, than the classic kind of cross-court patterns. And he could hit it early. And God, he was, he was smoking. Yes, it was interesting that some flat ball hitters had some success in this tournament, and it made me wonder, is there a point of of diminishing returns on clay in certain conditions when it is so slow and so heavy, it's not your typical clay, that the RPMs start to come down and therefore, and the ball's so heavy, it's, it's hard to, you know, get those RPMs and therefore slight advantage to a flatter ball hitter. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see. And if, if I were gunning for Roland Garros this year to try to take Nadal out, I would watch that match six times and, and try to unlock what Rublev did. Well, that's a great point about the conditions and the thick air. I mean, I remember um, the earlier Medvedev, Andre Medvedev, always did well at Hamburg, and Hamburg is the thick conditions clay court tournament. And that's um, he was beating Agassi in the '99 Roland Garros final, but it was overcast that day. So you're right, the thicker conditions that would mitigate the topspin factor. So in a way, 
Rublev wasn't quite as compromised by Nadal as he might have been on a hotter day. But again, we, we pretty much know that Nadal can win in all sorts of clay court conditions. But Rublev had a better chance in points, maybe not as many balls jumping out of his contact points the way they would on a sunny, on a sunny warm day. Yeah, and, and certainly the, the, the returns that Rublev got, got looks at because of Nadal's serving issues was a big factor. But yeah, I, I do think that Novak is someone... It, it, that's hard to execute what Rublev did because he took more than half of his backhands down the line which is obviously yeah. it's difficult yeah. to do that higher part of the net. You're changing direction. A lot of the time it's uh, the baseline's closer. So it's easier to hit it long. I mean, for so many reasons, it's, it's just difficult to do that, but Novak can certainly do that. So I think that that's something that mm. he should think about. What if I hit 65% of my backhands down the line? If you're Novak Djokovic, it's just something to try because yeah. we know, we know how surface dependent this Djokovic-Nadal rivalry has been with Nadal getting the better of things in the slower conditions and Djokovic in the faster conditions. So it's a changeup to consider. Yes, and he certainly can't do what he did in the final last fall. I mean, right. he'll have to, and, and that's really interesting, Gil, like why not trot that out if throughout the clay season at some point if if he happens to meet Nadal in one of these clay court tournaments or against someone else like a similar player like a root or something like that just trot it out try it and see what happens well what's so interesting what's such a challenge though against doing it versus Nadal okay look at Novak say yeah hit your backhand down the line more okay well remember as a way of eventually beating your left-handed rival so now you're doing it against forehands so it's a little different it's a little different configuration of what you're going to get out of points. So it's, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see how Novak can go, goes about conducting himself tactically throughout this time. Maybe, certainly when he plays left-handers, backhand down the line then to the backhand. But again, backhand down the line to the forehand, you better be inside the court and, and do something. I don't know, it's fascinating. I mean, Novak has a great, he can do anything he wants with his backhand. Yes, yes. His, and the faster surfaces has been to go wide to Nadal's forehand. This is my backhand can match your forehand. Play uh, different. Sorry about that, Joel. Yeah, I do. I think that's important to emphasize is that we're not saying, oh, just take the backhand down the line, beating it on clay, boom, unlocked. <laughs> All we're saying is that what 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 we're suggesting almost as something to try is something that most players physically are unable to execute. Mm-hmm. But Rublev has a, a great ability to do so, and Novak certainly can do that. Um, it doesn't mean he would win, but he can try. So uh, and this, by the way, is at, I'm going to, since we like to talk about the, the civilian player, mm-hmm. this is the stuff, this is a major gap between tactically between what pros do and what civilians can do. I mean, it's like you would you'd rarely recommend uh, a, a, a non top 200 player hit their backhand down the line frequently. I mean, for example, I was taught if you have a back, if you have a backhand, particularly if you're standing behind the baseline, you're going cross court 90% of the time, unless there's some, you know, odd weakness you're trying to exploit or you're way off the court. I mean, the whole, so the whole notion that the drive backhand down the line, particularly off the two hander has become a real game changer shot in the last 20, 30 years, right? That didn't exist as much. I also think that you're, you're taking you to do this and, and yes, he could do it. Um, you're taking Novak 
a little bit out of a strategy that he's been pursuing for the past few years, which is to run around and, and hit forehand more than he did in the early part of his career. So now you're you're thinking instead of that, you know, that zone of the court where you would run around and hit forehand, would you go ahead and almost hit backhand um, as a choice? Well, hit so it, inside out or hit the forehand inside in? hit the backhand, hit the backhand oh, but, but, down but the prior, But the prior, I know, but the prior model was hitting it inside, taking the forehand inside. See, it's, it's so- it's He so, could hit forehand, he could hit forehand. He could have, but again, versus a Rafa, it's interesting, the patterns, I mean, this is what's so great about the game and the big three are such good examples of the patterns they work against others that they run so successfully encounter these different kind of roadblocks and opportunities versus each other, Rafa being left-handed, Novak with the two-hander, Roger having to more or less abandon the backhand slice for the drive, all these little, these little twists and turns that define their rivalry that help them succeed against all the others. But then against first each other, like if, if Nadal didn't exist, we wouldn't have to have, to have this conversation about Novak. We just think, all right, Novak, you know, yeah, good for Evans that day. That was Evans' day. He's not, I mean, I don't think any of this would lead one to think that Evans could ever beat Djokovic in a three out of five set match on clay. Not yeah, with Novak uh, in condition. Three versus five is a big, you know, factor here. Um, also, incidentally, guys, I mean, we're talking about baseline patterns, which are really um, the mid and long range type rallies um, when the difference maker might lie in the serve and return. In the so, 2020, in the 2020 RG final, it was so much about serve return. Mm hmm. Although Nadal dominated in, in really every aspect. Well, because Nadal thoroughly, he just dictated, he just went after it yeah. right away early in those points. I mean, he was, he had this certain kind of commitment to how he was going to play. I mean, it's, and it's interesting how Nadal sometimes thought of as the defensive player gets aggressive in certain situations. And Novak, who's a, a mix of many things, talks about how well in the tie breaks, I, I mostly don't miss, you know? And so it's interesting how they each view their games. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So here's what we want to do now. We had a discussion earlier this week about the drop shot, continuing our series where we break down strokes one by one. So uh, we want to cut to that and, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up here on three. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline was that he he used the shot a lot more in 2020 from the very beginning to the very end, especially on the backhand. Um, Amy, do you, do you like that from Djokovic? Do, do you want to see that continue? And, and do you think it will? This is such a double-edged sword for, for Djokovic and for his fans, because the second he's not 
executing that shot, people get really frustrated with them. And they, you know, not just as fans, but other people, analysts, whatever, accuse him of bailing out on clay when he uses it. But in the match against Sinner, um, don't quote me on the exacts, but I know that he used it 21 times. And I think he might have been successful like 16 or 17 out of those. So obviously anything over 50% is, uh, and that's, you know, that's a really good percentage. So it's one of those shots that for him, when it's on, it's a beautiful thing. And personally, um, I think now's the time to practice it and, and uh, start using it. I would use it, especially since the end game here is to beat Nadal, right? And if Nadal is way back there, um, you gotta you gotta use the drop shot. Well, the drop shot is a great part of uh, of the game, always, but even more so in this baseline era where people are patrolling the court and the stretching of the court. It's interesting how all three of these guys have used it in their similar and different ways. Like Novak, Novak hits it pretty hits it pretty well off the backhand, but you see he's, you know, it's, it's not then disguised because now he's letting go with a hand. So, you know, but it's, it's, it's executed. Rafa does it mostly off the forehand, mm-hmm. right? Kind of when he's, when you think he's going to go obviously rip a forehand and he hits a kind of a, like a little inside out drop shot with a forehand. Um, Roger, who admitted a little patronization for it earlier in his career and then it ended up helping him win the French Open in 09. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a great shot. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's tremendous shot that uh, how these guys use it and how they build it. It's, it's fascinating. You're right though. Novak, I wonder why do you think Novak gets more criticized for it than Nadal or Federer? Way more, I may, think he way uses more frequent, it more. way more frequent. Yeah. 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 And he uses it a lot on clay. Well, he's a less, I'll say this. Okay. So here's kind of the, the picture of it all. He's the least, he's the one least likely to come to net. So mm-hmm. his way of kind of altering the, the flow of the point is the drop. Federer think Federer will use it, like Federer uses it sometimes the way I of my ear like to use it. It's as a drop approach. I'm gonna yeah. hit it, I'm gonna come to net off it. Nadal uses it, yeah. So Novak uses it more in lieu of maybe sometimes coming to net. I'm gonna push back on that. I'm gonna say. Djokovic uses it because he has to, because he has less tools to finish the point and to find that finish line. Nadal really, uh, Nadal has other ways with the forehand. We talked about the forehand last week and Federer and Nadal's forehands are just better point finishers uh, from even difficult positions. And I think when, when Novak is really looking to, uh, to change the point and to disrupt and to kind of, looked for uh look for ways to finish that's the the weapon that he goes to the tool that he goes to the others have more options well it's great it's like a football i just thought of a quarterback and who their receivers are and how they will look to you know score the touchdown or whatever or advance or move the ball so you're right rafa and roger probably hit a higher amount of forehand winners of outright of lasting forehands. they have among the best, maybe the two best forehands ever. I mean, just up there. And Novak, excellent forehand, but it's not quite, it's, it's the balanced arsenal, it's the forehand, it's the backhand, it's the concussive frequency of it all that's a little different than them. So maybe you're right, so then he needs to kind of like, if you look at the drop shot, okay, I'm gonna throw the running back here. 
This is my past. This is my past. I don't know. What do you think, Amy? I, I envision Federer, uh, the, the, what I'm picturing in my mind is that he's on the ad side of the court, the ball is short right around the service line, and the opponent is far back behind the baseline and doesn't really know what Roger's going to do. Is he going to go short angle cross? Is he going to go backhand down the line? And he kind of runs around and hits the forehand drop shot cross court really short. Like, I, I feel like I've seen him do that a billion times. And it, it's just, he almost never misses it. He doesn't use it that often, but that particular play seems to work for him almost every time. And if he does miss it, he just smiles and, and yeah. turns around. And, I know. like that the, the preparation on his backhand slice and the preparation for his backhand drop shot is the same. That's my yeah. favorite. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's the same. a good shot. It's like play the drop. Like yeah. uh, as a left-hander, I like the um, the drop approach. One of my pet plays because the ball comes short to the backhand, so as to hit it down the line. It's like okay, good. I'll hit it short. That'll be even better. And the drop, and it's just begging there. I think, um, I don't know how it is for you, Amy, as a one-hander, but as a one-hander, that when you see short balls, that drop shot is just irresistible. It's just like a, it's just like an extra piece of candy. It's just way, it's just begging to be hit in a certain kind of way that's different than the two-hander who's just going to can hit another big drive or that rolling that rolling cross-court backhand that a two-hander can hit where you take it off the court. So the chance, it's just irresistible. The, the I, I feel like um, because I have a one-handed backhand, when a ball is hit to my backhand side, that person on the other side doesn't know what I'm going to do. And it could be a slice that is piercing and deep. It could be a drive. It could be a heavy top or it could be a drop shot. And sometimes I'll admit, I mean to hit a slice that's longer and it ends up as a drop shot and it works out. <laughs> the, inadvertent, the inadvertent drop shot. Well, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah it's yeah. interesting how these guys use the drop shot, but it's a great shot. It should be, um, you guys practice it much at the Lewitt play skill? How'd that go? What yeah, I, I, I had a feeling, I knew that question was coming. Uh, no. And my drop shot stinks. It's not good. It's really bad. And because of that, I, I don't use it that often. It's better on the backhand because I have a good feel for my backhand slice. So I have a better feel for the drop shot. Uh, but my, my forehand drop shot, it's atrocious. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, I haven't practiced it very much. So that's why. I think most recreational players drop shot put off the backhand because they're used yeah. to hitting a slice and, and the, the feel and the shape on the forehand is different. Look, when I grew up, oddly enough, on Southern California hard courts, drop shot was often taboo also because it would sit up on the hard courts. But then as I got older, I came to um, understand it differently and, and learn to hit it more and could see how it could work. And God, I hardly, I mean, you guys play, play on clay way more than I do. God, on clay, it's just, it's just delicious. It's just fantastic. I mean, and again, yeah, it, the other options are harder. If yes. you can really get that backspin on it, it, it is enticing. Yeah. In fact, you almost have to be disciplined not to overuse it, you know, because it, it is, it's not bailing out, but it is kind of a quick end to the point. And, you know, that's, that kind of defeats the purpose of playing on clay in the first place. You're trying to teach yourself discipline and that kind of thing. Well, again, yeah, a little bit of a morphine hit. Yeah. On yeah, clay, exactly. the other options are harder. Do you know who did this before Novak? Andy Murray. 
would drop shot way more on clay because mm-hmm. he didn't have the power to hit through the clay courts. He didn't need to drop shot on grass. You know, there were simpler options. So I think that's one of the big reasons why we see it more on clay. Not that it's necessarily more effective, but maybe the other options are less effective. Well, that's right. So there's this whole companion piece to, to big forehands or volleying and all these other things. And you're right, it can become kind of a, it, it can be a form of a bailout. I mean, of, of a way of, of narrowing. So now it, it loses its surprise value if you're doing it all the time. And I think too, that we should make a distinction between a drop shot played from the baseline and a drop shot, a, vo- a drop volley. Those are, you know, completely different shots. And um, even though they, they both involve, you know, continental grip and, and a fair amount of touch. You mean um, a drop shot inside the, inside the base, you wait. But a drop shot, you said the baseline behind the baseline or inside the baseline? Around the baseline. Oh, yeah, that's a little more treacherous. But again, a drop shot as a transition, like an approach shot, someone hits a short ball to you, you know, it's kind of a foot past the service line. That's it. That's it. I mean, the, what, what Novak does is either behind the baseline or just inside the baseline, baseline play, okay. hitting the drop shot there. I mean, it's different than if your opponent is at the baseline and you're at the net and you drop the volley. Well, yeah, that's but also, a different shot. Yeah, but also there's another, there's the one we have, there's the third one, which is the opponent hits the ball short. The opponent mm-hmm. hits the ball, it's four inches past the service line. It's not a volley you're going to hit, it's the mm-hmm. one that Roger does. Yes. So that's, that's one too. But yeah, the drop volley, that's another irresistible. That's another irresistible. Those present themselves. And, and Nadal, for example, how many times do you ever see Nadal? He hits, they sometimes have the term called the stop volley or the, you know, the, the, um, it's not necessarily a drop volley. It's not like a perfect John Macro, but Nadal rarely volleys past the service line. So you have another topic. Ooh, I can't wait to hear what Gil poses yeah. to us. <laughs> yeah, it definitely it takes on a, a new form of life in, in the drop volley. But I, I want to talk about net play because Primarily, I see something with first Federer and now Djokovic does it as well that I find very interesting, which is taking advantage of of new racket technology in what I see as a very unique way as passing shots have become easier and net play has become a little bit more dangerous in some ways when when your opponent isn't really uh, in a defensive position, you see them using the drop shot not to win the point outright, but to bring the opponent to the net and set up the passing shot. That's the new serve and volley. It's the chip and pass, the drop and pass. That's my theory. Well, even the carbon star, you know, Federer doesn't have to hit that great a drop shot. He does it sometimes with the cross court slice backhand. It doesn't go that short. It goes around this. It goes, it goes around the service line. He wants you to hit it. He wants you to approach awkwardly. Right, he wants you to. He he hits his backhand cross court slice. It's not a drop shot that just bounces barely past the net. It's kind of a just an awkward thing, and the guy's got to run into the court and hit a backhand. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good uh, that's a good play. Novak does that with. What's the pattern for Novak? The slice or the drop? Cross court slice backhand. It's that's an old play. You know that was a junior play from the twelves and tens. We that was done where people would do that, right? You'd hit a drop shot and the person wouldn't know how to play the net and then you just lob them or pass them. Or I know mm-hmm. somebody used to, they, they would tag the person. 
<laughs> yeah, but it, it's it's like a chess match because, okay, um, this trend comes into vogue, which the passing shot and, and the strings and everybody gets these great passing shots. So the next chess move is to bring people into the net where they're not, most people are not as comfortable. Um, now that really doesn't apply to Federer and Nadal because they are comfortable at the net. But yeah, I've seen Novak use this. Um, the thing is, if you <laughs> if you miss the drop the drop shot, or it floats, or you hit it a little too deep, then you you eat it for lunch, and and they start the. I've seen Novak get really frustrated with himself after that. Or if the shot is too high, like there was a point in the Evans match where Novak hit one that was kind of a little high, a little too deep, and Evans missed a fairly makeable backhand. So it's, um, yeah, it's a little trick, the whole, the draw him in. That was kind of the whole premise of it, right? I've hit a, hit a short ball. Now, Feder, for example, when he slices his backhand cross court to a lefty forehand, not so good. And that's why Feder had to eventually, per the chess game analogy, start hit, driving his backhand more. He goes, okay, this is how I got to play Rafa now. Enough with the cutesy wootsy slice. I'm not just uh, playing some guy at the club. I got to really go after this thing. And of course, the, the recreational players, entree of choice, and Andy Murray does this, um, drop shot to draw the player in and then lob. That's pretty Nobody good. Nobody can hit an overhead, right? <laughs> well, that's usually what you see. You see these things. I think what's neat about the drop shot it kind of like a form of, a, uh, of an x-ray. It kind of helps reveal parts of someone's game and the game at every level can get so obviously linear. I mean, there are 26 letters in the tennis alphabet and you see a lot of players narrow down to 12 or however few. I mean, I heard a story about a, a coach calling Santoro anti-tennis and I thought this coach doesn't understand the game at all, at all. And the game is about this ways of applying pressure and how, how, that, gets, how that gets done. But again, for a developing player, uh, a coach wouldn't want a player to drop shot too much because you'd be negating the, the building of the forceful ground strokes and kind of the meat and potatoes suffer. It's just like in serve volley, I used to like to volley behind the person, but that was like a chicken way of not learning how to forceful volley into the open court right? Mm -hmm. Like to stick the volley, which you should do yeah. sometimes. All right. Always a fun discussion guys. And uh, we do have some more strokes to cover in the future next week. Uh, both Nadal and Djokovic are going home to play on courts named after themselves. Rafa <laughs> goes to Barcelona to play on peace to Nadal Djokovic to Serbia to play on uh, court Novak Djokovic. So uh, that's uh that means you've made it in tennis. I think once <laughs> you've played. Yeah. So I would say yeah. so very much. Yeah, you have a court named after you. Yeah, you hate it. That's right. That's right. Uh, and that'll do it uh, for this episode of three. We hope that you like the video, leave a comment on YouTube and subscribe. We're available on all podcast platforms. And it's great if you would leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That uh, is always awesome. And we always appreciate that. We'll see you next time on the next episode of three.